Hallelujah. Almost home. Praise God. Praise God. But we're not home yet. And uh, while we're here, he is still at work, isn't he? Between now and then, he gives us things to be thankful for. It's right that we set aside at least one day a year to say thank you. Uh, perhaps it would be good to make a point of that every Thursday. You don't have to eat the turkey every Thursday. Uh, I've had turkey since Thursday. I love turkey. I'm good for another year. <laughs> but I also know that when we gather, not everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. For some, it's a particularly sorrowful time. Uh, for many, I know many here who are sharing their first holiday without a loved one and others who are continuing to experience holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas without loved ones and especially when in our tradition those holidays are so much about family then it becomes especially difficult but my prayer is that even in those circumstances God would give you grace to say thank you and in the thank, thanking him experience his presence and his comfort and his work in your life. Uh, this it, kind of following with the uh, Thanksgiving theme, I would like to focus on the theme of rejoicing or exalting this morning. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Romans chapter 5, 1 to 5. I'll give you a moment to look for that, and then I'd like us to stand together as we read this. If you have a Bible, uh, please uh, turn to that, Romans 5, 1 to 5, and let's stand together. I'm reading from the New American Standard. <clears throat> Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we recognize that these words that we've just read are your words. Yes, they were penned by Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Father, you say that your word will not return to you void without accomplishing that which you intend to accomplish. And we claim that promise this morning. We ask for your word to have its effect. Father, we ask that you would cause each of our hearts, graciously, Father, that you would cause each of our hearts to be good soil, to receive your word, to bear fruit for your glory. And we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Well, we find in this passage two reasons that we are to exalt or to rejoice in hope. And the second one comes, I think, as a bit of a surprise. The first one is to exalt in hope of the glory of God. Or as I think we'll see this morning, he's saying that we can exalt and rejoice in hope because of what God has already accomplished in us and for us. And the second reason is to exalt in our tribulations. And again, as we look at that, I think we'll see that what he's saying is that we can exalt and rejoice in hope because of what God is accomplishing in us now. So first, rejoice in hope because of what God has accomplished in us. Now, as we come to this passage, this is chapter 5. It comes after chapter 4. Intense research to discover that. But the first four chapters of Romans, Paul has been building an explanation for justification by faith alone. And so when he comes to this, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith in Christ. And so it's important what he's going to talk about in chapter 5 here and in the first 11 verses, we're only looking at the first five. But in the first 11, he's talking about benefits that accrue to us because we've been justified. So this is part of our justification includes these benefits that we experience. So he begins, therefore, having been justified by faith. So all of these benefits that are described in verses, in, through verses 11, through verse 11, are ours because we have been justified in Christ by faith. So what does justification mean? Well, justified means that we've been declared righteous by God because of our faith in Christ. Declared righteous by God because of our faith in Christ. And justification includes two aspects. Uh, The first one is first part of justification is that we were forgiven. Now, if you can imagine that this musty old book uh, represents a list of my sins. Now, unless it was done with microfont, it would be a much bigger book. But just imagine that that's all my sins, and I'm under the burden of that. I'm under the burden. All of us are under the burden of the sins that we have committed against God. And the first part of justification is that those sins have been removed from us. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light, said, let these sins be removed. And they were removed. When he speaks, it happens. And by faith, when we've by faith placed ourselves under Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, those sins are removed. Not just the sins that we committed up to that moment, but all of the sins from the time that I first drew breath to the time that I draw my last breath, all of those sins removed. Hallelujah. But there's a second part, too, that's included, and that is after the sins have been removed, there's what's called imputation, and that is all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of the obedience of Jesus Christ is placed on me. So that, again, by decree, The God who said, let there be light, said, 
when we professed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, let the righteousness of Christ be his, be hers. It's our righteousness. No longer the burden of sin, but we are the righteousness of Christ before God. That's important that we get that. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism expresses it. As if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if my, I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. All of the righteousness of Christ counted as mine. Now it is likely that there are some here this morning who have never experienced this miracle. And the weight of your sin still bears down on you heavily. And you long for forgiveness. You may not even know that it's forgiveness you need. You just know that you bear this and you long for release. And brothers and sisters, even among those of us who attend regularly and for many years, maybe, just maybe, some of you have said the prayer, you have checked all the religious boxes, but you have never actually experienced the undeniable power of the Spirit in work in you because of justification. And you still are under your sins. Those of you, some who may be visiting, uh, maybe the word sin sounds strange to your ears. Because we live in a society that says sin is not the problem. People are not sinners. No, the problem is our culture assures us that our problem is not sin. It's simply that we have some weaknesses that we need to overcome. Or maybe we are under some oppressions that we need deliverance from. I'm not a sinner. I'm simply a victim of my own weaknesses or of someone else's dominance. But I'm not a sinner. I am essentially okay. Just give me a chance. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the essential issue is that we have asserted ourselves over and above God. That we have chosen, we have rejected His right to rule over us. We have rejected His conditions for relationship with Him. And that's called sin. That's what the Bible calls sin. And the result of that sin is great dysfunction in our own lives. It is dysfunction in our relationships. And most telling, and really the root issue, is dysfunction in our relationship with God because we are under his judgment and under his wrath. So unless, and apart from repenting and turning from our self-centeredness and crying out to God to save us, the weight of our sin and the judgment of of God remains on us. Now here's the good news. If you find yourself in that position this morning, you can cry out from right where you are. You can cry out to God. Oh God, 
have mercy on me. I'm a rebel. I'm sinful. I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior and place my faith in him, in Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. You can cry out to him right now. You may not even get all the words right. Because God's not so, not so concerned about our grammar as he is about the condition of our hearts. You can cry out to him right now. Now, all of us who do belong to Christ, remember, again, that we are justified by faith in Christ. It is, it, it is, it is as though uh, we have never had or committed any sin. That's important. As you regard, as you think in your mind's eye what God's attitude toward you is at any particular time, we need to begin with the understanding that he looks at us and it's as though not only have we been forgiven all the sins we've committed, but it's as though we never, we, it is as though we did all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the starting place, always. And that's what leads to some of the benefits. The first benefit, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have placed our faith in Christ, we have peace with God. The war is over. The war is over. He is always at peace with us. Always. This is an objective peace that's accomplished by Christ for us. Just as when we, we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the salvation that he accomplished for us on the cross and applied to us by faith, when that was done, part of what was applied to us by faith is peace with God. Brothers and sisters, this is not a peace that you can earn. You can't earn this peace with God any more than you can earn your righteousness, that you could earn your way into heaven. It's simply granted to us by his grace. This is an objective peace accomplished in Christ. Now, it is true that when we sin, when we rebel against God, we're not at peace with him. Our heart has a problem. His heart never has a problem. He is always at peace with us. That's why, praise God, we have 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is always faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he's always at peace with us. It's all been forgiven. Goes on, Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have this peace. We also stand in grace. It's, it's the idea of this, this uh, obtaining the entrance is as though we've been able to enter into this broad field of safety and of beauty and in that field, God himself is present. We have access to God by grace. We have access. Not just Monday through Friday from 8 to 4, except on bank holidays. No, 24-7. We have access to God by grace grace. It's not just that by grace we're saved for something that happens 
when I stop breathing and God takes me to heaven. That's a grace that we walk in, that we live in now. Again, grace is never earned. It is given freely. And God is accessible to us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? If he's already given the most precious thing, and that is the, son of the, the life of his own son, how much more will he just freely give us whatever else is good? Now, we don't always know what's good. So that doesn't mean he gives us whatever we want. He gives us whatever is good. And it's always good. Always good. Amazing grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the grace in which we all now stand. It's not simply a future grace. It is a present grace. And it is the state in which we exist before him. God is not standing up in heaven with his arms folded, with a look of disappointment on his face. There he goes again. There she goes again. After everything I've done for them, they keep sinning. No. We stand in grace. It is his glory to forgive sin. It is his glory to heal the sick. It is his glory to, to bind up the wounded. He glories in that. If you are hurt and broken and sinful, turn to him. It is his glory to receive us. He will not withhold anything from us. He is at peace with us. We have entered in by grace into his very presence. Doesn't make any difference whether I had my quiet time this morning, whether I went to church this week, whether I shared my faith. He is gracious. We screw up all the time. He is always available by grace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice, brag, boast. And actually, we need to understand this is not a command. It's, it's not an imperative, this word rejoice, this word exalt. It's more like an invitation or a privilege. Because we have been justified by faith in Christ, oh, come, let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us boast in the hope of the glory of God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. We don't hope for what we already possess. We hope for what we know is real as Christians. We hope for what we know is real and assured, but we don't have yet. I don't hope for this blue blazer. Now, some of you wouldn't hope for it anyway, but, but I don't hope for this blue blazer. I own it. It's already mine. I don't have to hope for this blue blazer. But I'm hoping for the glory of God. That's what fills my hope. And I rejoice in that hope. 
We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And what we're exalting in in this hope is not simply... It's not simply that God is glorious and great and majestic. He is that now and forever. We've not quite seen it yet, but that's who he is. But the hope that's being described here is the hope that of the glory of God in us. We hope in the glory of God in us. We hope in that because it's assured. I'll tell you what, I can't wait to draw my last breath. Not because I don't love it here. But whatever I love here, I'm going to love more there. And I will be full of his glory. That's what we were created for. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. This is, this is the glory that was begun at our conversion that increases through our sanctification and someday will be completed when we stand before him. Romans 8, 28 to, uh, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Hallelujah, it's always about Jesus. And, the, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he has justified, he also glorified. Did you catch that? Eternity past, he foreknew us. And in eternity past, he predestined us. And in the, con in the context of time, he called us. And when he called us, we believed and he justified us. That's an unbroken chain. And what's the end of the chain? He will glorify us. It's an unbroken chain. It can't be broken. From eternity past to eternity future, God's plan is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ to reveal his glory in us. We rejoice in hope because of what God has accomplished for us. We have been justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ, and are at peace with God, and we are the recipients of a transforming grace. Therefore, we can rejoice in hope. But we can also rejoice in hope because of what God is accomplishing in us now. Now, what he's accomplishing in us ultimately will be his glory in our, in our very being. He will accomplish that. But in time, we're experiencing that work that he's doing. He's not just going to wait for eternity to make us like Jesus. He is committed right now to making every one of his disciples look like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He is transforming us now. A short time after I came to faith, I remember hearing a speaker, uh, and he, he had been um, a worker in Africa. 
he had gone to Africa to make disciples. And he and his wife and his little child were in Africa. And as they were driving along the, the road one day, and it was a particularly dry and desolate portion of the road, they saw an old African kind of slowly walking along the road in, in an old, you know, traditional garb. And, and uh, so they pulled over to the side of the road, and they offered him a, a ride. And as this man climbed into the car, my friend looked at him, and he realized that he had met him before. This was actually the leader of all of the Christian churches in the region. He was an extreme, he's just a very godly, humble man. And so he, as he climbed into the car, my friend recognized him, and he settled in, and, the, and they started going down the road. And the whole time they're traveling and they're having conversation, the man's little four or five-year-old daughter is sitting in the back seat, and she is sitting just in wonder, looking at this man they just picked up. And whenever this man would turn to her and ask her a question, her eyes would just glow, and very shyly she'd kind of respond. And they finally arrived at the spot where the man was going, and they let him climb out of the car, and he left, and the family continued down the road, and the uh, little girl was uncharacteristically silent, usually quite noisy and bouncy. And, but now she's silent and even thoughtful. And after a few minutes, she says to her father, Daddy, that man makes me think of Jesus. Daddy, that man makes me think of Jesus. That was life-changing for me. Because I realized, as a disciple of Jesus, that's what God is about in me. And as disciples of Christ, that is what God is about in each of our lives, to make us look like Jesus. That is discipleship. Wouldn't it be amazing if after we had interactions with one another on a Sunday morning, what would run through our minds is, wow, that brother, that sister, makes me think of Jesus. What a fellowship, what a congregation we would be. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the great purpose of God in every disciple's life, to make us look like Jesus. As we behold him, to be transformed into his likeness, and brothers and sisters, oh, be done with a Christianity whose primary demand is morality. It is very possible to be very moral and not look anything like Jesus. It's not possible to be like Jesus and not be moral. But the focus is knowing him. The change is from the inside out.
How does the world see us? Are we more concerned about our morality and imposing our morality? Or do they see in us Jesus? I don't want people to hate me because I'm moral. I want people to hate me because I look like Jesus. And when we look like Jesus, people will either hate us or love us. That's what Paul tells us. We either smell like death or life, depending on who's smelling us. This is what Jesus is doing in us. We can be moral apart from Christ's likeness, but we cannot be like Christ without transformed morals. God's goal in our discipleship is transformation into the very likeness of Jesus, beginning from inside and working out. It's important for us to know that's what he's about. We have to know that's what he's about if the rest of these verses are going to make any sense. Listen to how he has chosen to make us look like Jesus. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. My brothers and sisters, I understand as I share this that some of you, many of you, are in the midst of extremely difficult trials. And you are trying to walk through this and please God, and then you hear, not only do you need to get through it, but you need to rejoice. Oh, man. I can't rejoice. So here's just, I'll just add that to the list of things that God is unhappy about as I'm trying to work through it. No. That's not the case. And I pray that as we work through this, God will grant us grace to see the glorious hope that is in this passage and grant each of us grace to receive that hope from his word. Because let's face it, we can can understand endure tribulation. We can, you know, the old stiff upper lip. We can, I don't even know what that means, stiff upper lip. I mean, I know what it means, but... I have to ask some Brit sometime what that's about. We know that we can endure. We can gut it out. We understand a command like that. Even Thanksgiving. You know, as a little kid, you know, my mom and dad would say, say, thank you, Jeff. I don't feel like saying thank you. Say, thank you, Jeff. When my dad said, say, thank you, Jeff, I always said, thank you. I could learn to say, thank you. But to rejoice, that's a tough one. And please note again that this is not a command to rejoice. It's an invitation to rejoice. It's an invitation to all who are justified in Christ Jesus to rejoice. And I would suggest that what Paul is saying here is something like, if we understand the outcome of suffering and tribulation, as God understands the outcome, we will naturally rejoice and exalt in tribulation. 
Let me say that again. If we understand the outcome of sufferings as God understands the outcome of sufferings, then we will naturally, we will naturally rejoice. Uh, many of you know that Lynn and I and our boys uh, were in Taiwan. We were church planters there for about 18 years. And Taiwan, we have storms in Taiwan called typhoons. It's the same thing that people here call hurricanes, okay? Same storms. I don't know why we have a different name for them there, but we, there were typhoons over there. And Taiwan was right in Typhoon Alley. We, it wasn't, would we get a typhoon this year? The question was always, how many typhoons will we get this year? That is not an exaggeration. Uh, and so these, these storms would come, and they would just rip things apart, uh, I did not see Taiwanese actually thrilled about typhoons. But I did notice one year when we weren't getting any typhoons that there was a great deal of anxiety and worry. And I thought, what's everybody worried about? Got sunny skies. And my friend said, because we need typhoons. If we don't get typhoons, we don't have water. And if we don't get the water from the typhoons, then we can't grow our rice. We can't grow our vegetables. We can't grow anything. We need typhoons. They saw typhoons very differently than I had seen typhoons. And when they didn't get them, they realized they were in trouble. Too many sunny days in typhoon season meant great trials ahead because there wasn't enough water. Taiwan needed the rain from the typhoons. Brothers and sisters, we need the water that comes from tribulation. We desperately need it. Paul says we can rejoice in suffering because of something we know. See, my neighbors knew something about the weather and pattern and the water needs in Taiwan. And because they knew the facts, they embraced typhoons. Paul is saying we can rejoice in suffering because of something we know. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance will produce proven character. Now, proven character is Christ-likeness. So it's endurance that produces Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness will produce hope. So what does this word tribulation mean? We should get that down first. Well, it means any affliction or distress. It doesn't just mean suffering because of my testimony for Christ. This just means any suffering that we encounter. It means oppressive, uh, an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. It means that whatever you are facing right now that is to you a trial, to you a tribulation, whatever that is, this verse applies. Okay? I think that includes most of the people in the room. If it doesn't include everyone, then it includes people who just came out of such a season or people who are just going into such a season, okay? We have tribulations in this world, and they're all included in this verse. This verse is telling us that those tribulations, those afflictions, are often deep, but they are among God's, I think I would say they are God's method of forming Christ in us. 
And see, so many of the spiritual disciplines are things we can choose to do or not do, right? We can choose to be in the Word or not. We can choose to pray or not. We can choose to gather together or not. These are things that we decide whether we are going to avail ourselves of the, of the mercies and gifts that God has given us so that we can grow in likeness. This one's not our choice. You don't wake up in the morning and God says, hey, how about a tribulation today? No, you get halfway through your day and disaster strikes. And some of you in the room know exactly what I mean. Not just little trials sometimes. Sometimes devastating trials. Sometimes they sneak up. Sometimes they grow slowly. Sometimes they come suddenly. But they are always at the sovereign choice of God. That's the point here. This is a sovereign choice of God. It's a tool that God uses in our lives. And he says, he brings them because endurance will result in proven character. And proven character will produce hope. And brothers and sisters, the opposite is also true. If we endure a trial, a tribulation, and we complain, or we just seek to avoid it, then we complain and then we crumble. We will fall apart under that testing, under that trial. And then we will despair, depending on how great the trial is, how deep the despair is. See, it works both ways. The trial comes, God sovereignly brings a trial. And if we endure under that trial, then Christ is formed in us. And we become people of great hope. But when that trial comes, if we simply complain, try to squiggle out of it, then we will crumble. We will not endure under that trial. We will crumble and we will despair. I believe we live in a society that that's the typical advice given to complain and seek to escape. We are a society that prioritizes the avoidance of suffering. There is much suffering, but our focus as a society is to avoid as much of it as possible. One writer has observed that our mantra has become, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Now, way back in the day when I used to when I used to be an athlete, my coach would always say, he would quote the original version of that, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as an excuse for why he would make me work so hard. But the mantra today is, whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And the result is that we have a society of ill-formed character. We have a society of people who have sought to escape suffering or simply complained under suffering and the result is ill-formed character. And the result of ill-formed character is despair. And it's the epidemic of despair and hopelessness in our society today. Depression, suicide, violent crimes, all skyrocketing. Why? people who don't know God, 
complaining, crumbling. But as Christians, we can make the same mistake, can't we? Listen to our prayers for ourselves and for others. God, deliver us from illness. Give us safe journeys. Give us good jobs and resources. Bring peace to our homes. Deliver us from pain in our lives. God, please don't let us suffer, and when we must suffer, get us out of it as soon as possible. Could it be that the reason that there's often a shortage of hope in our lives is that our prayers sound just like the world's philosophy? But if we view these tribulations from God's perspective, from his loving, sovereign perspective, there are no accidents. There are, that even, even when we're enduring something because we've sinned and there's a consequence, even that is a, is, is a trial that's shaped and prepared for God, by God for us. We are not God over our own lives, making our trials or, or not. We are not under just some subject to chance or to other people or unjust to us. No, those are all secondary issues. God, the sovereign God, has prepared the trials that we find ourselves in. And he's done it so that he can grow hope in our lives. And if we understand that, perhaps our prayers would be different. I think it's okay to pray for healing. It's okay to pray for God's care and protection. There's nothing wrong. But when that's the foundation in all we pray, we show that we've misunderstood God at work. Maybe our prayers, if we believed God, would sound more like this. Oh God, grant me grace to endure that you might accomplish in me the likeness of Christ and hope in what looks like a hopeless situation. How often do we pray like that for ourselves, for our friends, for our, our sick coworkers, or whose marriages are declining? How often do we pray like that for our children? We spend a great deal of time trying to keep them out of conflicts, running into trials. Do we pray biblically for them when they're in the midst of the trial? I have a very dear friend who said, uh, who has endured many years of suffering, ongoing, continual suffering. Part of it is he can't sleep at night as a result of some of the things that are going on. And he paces at night, and he wrestles with God. And he said, Jeff, one of the things I've realized is that the church does not do a good job of preparing disciples for deep suffering. So brothers and sisters, we need to understand this is the way God works. But the great hope that he promises because of what he's doing, even when the circumstances don't change, perseverance always leads to proven character. And proven character always leads to hope. And hope never disappoints. It's an unbroken chain. And it takes time. It takes time. 
My wife and I went through a journey with her mother about 10 plus years while she was going down a journey of, of uh, uh, dementia. Couldn't remember the word. <laughs> it was 10 years. And when I started that, I was angry and frustrated. And God graciously let us have 10 years, more than 10 years, so that he took us, and it took her a different journey because it was her mother, and she was the primary caregiver. And I'm just so grateful for the way God worked in her life, but it took us 10 years to move from anger and discontent to content, first to acceptance, and then to content, and from content to thankfulness, and from thankfulness to rejoicing. And I'm glad she stayed with us long enough that we could get to rejoicing because we're slow learners. But I want to tell you, if you're in the midst of such a thing, such a struggle right now, this is not an overnight change. It happens over time. But hope never does disappoint. Proven character, I mean, uh, endurance, proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint. And why is that? Because, as the verse goes on to tell us, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is what God is constantly doing. He is pouring out his abundant love in our hearts. And we come to know that and experience that more deeply as we walk with God through the trials and tribulations that we encounter. By God's grace, we can be a people who rejoice in hope. We can be a people who rejoice in hope because of the great peace and grace that are inseparably a part of our redemption, of our justification as children of God. We can also rejoice in hope because God has transformed tribulation from being only hurtful and destructive to actually being the path to a great hope that cannot disappoint. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We are not caught in a random universe. We thank you and praise you that you have redeemed us and made us your own. You have justified us, and therefore we have great benefit. We pray that we would be a people who would walk with you in such a way that we would experience and know these benefits that are vouchsafed to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I especially pray for the many in this room right now that are facing very difficult trials. And I pray that you would grant them grace to endure those trials. And each of us, as we encounter them in the future, endure those trials that Christ may be formed in us and that we might experience the great hope because the love of Christ is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.